You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. Join us each week for messages designed to equip, inspire, and deep calling to deep. Today's message is brought to you by Lead Pastor Kim Foreman. You know, there are so many hidden messages in God's Word, so many mysteries um, that He put there before us. And He wants us to ponder, He wants us to search out, even in our day-to-day lives, God is always speaking. If we really take the time to listen and we really look for Him, we'll see Him in all things. Whether He painted you a beautiful sunrise, or if there was a dove outside your window cooing, perhaps you were too busy, you were late for work, never paid attention, but nonetheless, God is always there speaking. You know, he loves when we study to show ourselves approved. What teacher does not love a good student eager to learn? And he's the greatest teacher of all. He's the rabbi of all rabbis, the master instructor. And he loves to give us challenges. And he loves for us to, to, to ponder, to question. He loves it when we ask questions. He loves to see us to have passion. He loves to see when we solve riddles or enigmas. He loves giving us puzzles. He loves us to search out a thing. And he loves to watch our faces when we get revelation and we get understanding. He loves that. And he's patient with us. Not like when our kids, remember our kids were toddlers and everything was why, why, why. And you got so tired. God never gets tired of us asking questions. He loves that we want to seek things out and we want to have understanding. He wants us to want to know revelations. And Jesus loves speaking in parables. God continually put pictures before us. So this morning as we enter into um, the Holy Week with with Palm Sunday, the question is why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem as a king upon a donkey rather than a horse? That's a good question, isn't it? And many of you may know that answer. Um, But you know, last year when it was Palm Sunday, I talked about the donkey. The donkey representing the beast of burden. A donkey represents the tribe of Issachar. And what is Issachar? Issachar is a tribe that knows the seasons and the times of the Lord. Issachar is the strongest tribe in intercessory prayer. They can carry the greatest burdens. And they're the ones, donkeys are able to carry that burden and go up mountains and and do all kinds of rough terrain and they're able to handle it well. So the donkey has many, many uh, meanings. And uh, so let's, our our text today, of course, is going to be Matthew 21, 1 through 5. Uh, You can, if you have your Bibles or you want to look it up on your phones, um, it says that now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village and in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Until then and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, that the, that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey colt. His disciples did not understand this, 
that these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to them. Don't you know, have you ever experienced that with God had given you a word and you didn't understand it? And then you get into that season, that time when that word's being fulfilled and the Holy Spirit brings that revelation up and you have that aha moment. <gasps> this is what he meant. Do you know how many times the disciples must have had that aha moment after he resurrected and, and when they got filled with the Holy Ghost? Because again, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. So don't you know there were so many things that they got to experience walking with Jesus, that they didn't have the full revelation until they were filled with the Spirit. Then we're like, oh, that's what he meant? Oh, that's what Scripture said. And how wonderful is it when we put the Word in us that the Lord's able to draw it up? And then that's the thing, is that we can be in the midst of something, and all of a sudden it's in that time, that Kairos time, when God is bringing about what he's promised maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago to you. And then you'll have that scripture come up. You'll be back in that place in that time. And God will say, this is what I meant. And then you go, like, oh. and then the interpretation comes. And you're like, oh, wow. 500 years before Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus had traveled numerous times to Jerusalem to observe the feast. His final entry, his final entry into Jerusalem had a unique significance he was triumphantly arriving as a humble king of peace. Historically, entering a city on a donkey signified peace rather than a conquering king on a horse. So everything's about symbols. Zechariah 9.9 says, The king comes unto you meekly and lowly. Most people believe this is because he's on a donkey. And that's not so. The donkey was a royal steed in the Old Testament. The king rode on a donkey is very, very important. Not a horse, because again, if he came in on a horse, it meant he was a conquering king. But he came as a king of peace. <coughs> Remember Absalom, when he usurped the kingdom from his father David? The first thing he did was to get what? The royal steed, the royal donkey, and ride it through the streets of the city. When it says he comes meek and lowly, it means he has no military apparatus. It means, again, because the donkey, again, means peace. So in Judges chapter 5, it says, Speak ye that ride upon white donkeys. You that sit in judgment, rich men and judges rode on donkeys until horses were brought into the country. And then the donkey was used by the poorer people who could not afford a horse. The donkey can be very gentle and very patient and does not seem to get angry even when he has a heavy load. Though he seems dull, that's what the Bible says, says he seems dull, he loves his master. And oftentimes in a crowd of men, if the donkey sees his master, he will run through the, those men to find his master. Isaiah 1.3 say, says, The ox knoweth his owner, and the donkey his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people does not consider 
Is it not a sad thing that scripture tells us that the dull donkey should be more grateful than we are? Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. Everything is symbolic. That last triumphant entry into Jerusalem as if he was again preparing for his death, resurrection, and burial. And it's a week before that he makes that descent into Jerusalem. It makes me think Mount Olives, and we're going to talk about Mount Olives some this morning. It makes me think of when he gave up his heavenly throne. You know what? Until we get to glory, until we get a glimpse of heaven, we will not fully realize that the king of kings set down his throne and left his heavenly abode to come be born of a virgin and to come and be in pain and give up his life to give us life. We won't know until we get even a glimpse of glory. We'd probably be overwhelmed by what he gave up when he made that choice to come here and die to save us. But it makes me think about being born in the manger. And we all picture all the things that we've seen, you know, at Christmas time in the manger scene with the donkey. But him coming from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, even though he's on a donkey, that triumphant entry, I think about him coming and being born of a virgin and being placed in the womb of Mary, that descending. And you know, the Mount of Olives is also called the Mountain of Anointing. Because don't we know you have to be crushed? Things have to be crushed to release the anointing. Don't we in our trials and our tribulations in our life, is that not what God has to do? Bring us through those things to crush our flesh, to crush our outer man, to crush our soul, to release the spirit? Because again, unless a seed dies and goes into the ground, it's the same thing that has to happen to us, is it has to die to release the spirit. Because life is in the spirit. Our spirit is what needs to come forth. We all heard that the olive tree is literally whipped. It's literally whipped to get the olives out. They actually have an instrument that beats the branches and, uh, and releases the olives. And sometimes they do it by stripping the fruit by hand. And then what's it done? It's put into an olive press and it's pressed to release the oil. Is that a not representation of what happened to our Lord and Savior yeah. on the cross? Mount Olive was the first known as a place of prayer. Again, as we mentioned Absalom, David ascended there barefoot, crying, weeping, head covered to pray in the Mount of Olives during that time. And uh, that's 2 Samuel 15.30. And the prophet Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesied future judgment of Israel as well as future restoration with the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 says Mount Olive as the exact place where the Messiah would return. Mm. Jesus prayed on the Mount of Olives in the day of crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that the angel comforted him. He often retreated there to pray. That's in Luke 21:37 and Luke 22:39. In the week leading up to the cross, he visited Mount Olive three times. The first time was what we're talking about today. He came there, and then he descended into Jerusalem. In Acts, uh, the first chapter, 11 through 12, Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives too. 
Zechariah 14.4 gives us the future hope and assurance that Jesus will one day return to us. Is that not what we're all looking for? Is that not what? We better keep our eyes open and have our lamps full of oil, right? Mount Olives is where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Mount Olives represents an everlasting hope that Jesus our Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead when he came down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And John eleven twenty five 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whomsoever lives in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, we do. Amen. The crowd of Jews who witnessed this resurrection of Lazarus believed then that he was the Son of God. And however, some went to tell the Pharisees and they grew worried that more would become to believe in Christ and follow after Christ and take their land and take their power. And so uh, they began to plot his death at that moment. So this uh, much is what caused them to throw down their coats. So the Jews, because of the resurrection, that's when they begin to throw down their coats and they begin to take the palms and they begin to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. That's when they begin to proclaim it. But it took the resurrection of Lazarus for them to fully believe. You know... Bob said it earlier, Hosanna means save us. It also means a prayer. It means a praise. It's adoration when we use that name. Why palms? Why did they use palms? Again, palms are, are a symbol of victory, of triumph, peace, and eternal life. Um, the palm was sacred. God never misses an opportunity and never misses the opportunity, even our, in our own lives. Um... To use powerful symbols. He's always speaking like what I said in the beginning. He's always speaking. If you're looking, if you're looking, he'll show you. He'll give you the meaning. He'll show you things in nature. He'll show you things in many, many ways. In ancient Rome, the palm tree was associated with victory so much so that when a lawyer won a case in court, he put a palm branch on the door of his house. The Judge Deborah when we look at the Judge Deborah in the book of Judges, she rendered all her judgments where? Under the palm tree. When I was preparing this, I began to think back of the last time I, I uh, had the last sermon that I did about crossing over. Well, and then how, how Joshua was a type of Jesus and his name meant salvation also. But it also, how he brought the people into the land of milk and honey and conquered the giants in the land in five years. We discussed the Jordan, which meant what? Going down, kind of like what we talked about, the crucifixion of the flesh before crossing over. Everything about Jesus was the opposite of man's ways and the opposite of Satan's ways. He came in the opposite of evil in every way. And the first city that Joshua came to after the Jordan was what? Jericho. What is Jericho? It's the city of palms. God commanded Joshua to go around the walls of Jericho, what? Once every day for six days, and what? On the seventh day, on the, on the seventh time, God commanded seven priests blowing the trumpets as the Ark of the Covenant in front of them and all the people right behind the Ark of the Covenant. Does this not show how God was the one, the only who could knock down that wall? 
They believed that the walls were 12, and, uh, 12 feet high and 6 feet thick. Jericho was a gateway city to Canaan. The walls were so thick that it was solid protection. That in Joshua 6.1 it says the gates were locked to keep the Israelites out. Now we're talking about fortified, huge. Joshua 6.20 says... When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. What God promises, he will fulfill. There's nothing can stand in the way of our God. Nothing. And the account of the walls of Jericho coming down, is that not a significant part of God's promises coming to pass, and that the Israelites would indeed inherit and possess the promised land. And again, why seven? Why seven priests? Uh, seven uh, days? I mean, all of this is symbolic. When you start studying sevens in Scripture, there are many sevens. There's the seven bowls of um, in the temple. There's the seven kingdoms of Satan. There's the seven horns, the seven laps. There's even seven thunders. There's 70 palms. So when you begin to sense seven, there is nothing that's happenstance with our God. Everything has a meaning. Everything, and if we'll look, we'll even see the hidden meaning behind what he's saying to us. Um, is not Jesus Christ our promise? And is he not our promised land? And in three years of his ministry... Did he not provide everything for us? He overcame death, hell, and the grave, and he mantled us in the same way. And through his death, um, we've been given dominion and power through him. And then did what did he do? He sent us the Holy Spirit. Now, the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, he placed within each one of us when we receive the Holy Spirit. How awesome is that? So again, what's impossible with man is possible with God. We do not have an inkling of the power and the authority that he has placed in us. One of the things I think we minister a lot here at Restoration, we really don't know who we are. And I'm hoping that God and his awesomeness is going to begin to reveal that to us more and more and more. Many of us have never even fully tapped into the power he's given us because we are unwilling to do maybe things his way. I think I hit that when we were talking about the crossing over, being stuck in the wilderness. But you know what? We need to take the road less traveled. So what does that mean? To walk in true humility. And that's what I'm going to speak on. I'm speaking on true humility. The humility of Christ that brings great honor. The humility of Christ that really roots up and pulls down and really does kingdom work in the earth today. Just like Christ did. Um, and it is to esteem others greater than ourselves. It's to have served more than be served. Humility is freedom from pride and arrogance. Pride and arrogance are man's greatest fight against the flesh. We all fight it. It's something that pride will just rise up and we'll think it's been dealt with and there it is again. And it is the characteristics of Satan. Self-exaltation is the pride of man. Humility. Humility is what? People giving up their own privileges in order to serve those who have less. To see others' needs as important as their own. That's humility. God calls us in the New Testament saints and his children. 
And he goes out of his way to declare how loved and redeemed and how blessed we are. People get confused about humility. And I'm hoping today I can give you a, a, maybe a, a clearer definition of what humility is. Consider how C.S. Lewis put these directions into the mouth. If you've never read the screw tape letters, it's a very interesting satire that C.S. Lewis wrote. Uh, and it was like 31 letters. And it was a chief demon talking to his uh, underling and training him up. His name was Wormwood, the underling. And trying to give him charge of strategies to um, help the humans go to the way of damnation. So I'm going to read a little bit of text that's in the screw tape letters. And again, this is, uh, you know, the head demon talking to the, the lower demon. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? Catch him at the moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Job, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes of this danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt to catch it, put it down. And so on and through and many stages as you please. But don't try this tool too long for fear you will awake his sense of, of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. Mm. That's been written a long time ago, but is that not what we face? Romans 12, 3 says, Humility is not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, but so with sober judgment according to what God says in his word. Thus, growing in humility is a lifelong venture. Y'all, we're going to do this the rest of our life. We are going to have to put pride at the altar and have humility worked in us. But as you increase in knowledge of God's word and appreciation for God's work through Christ, humility will be produced. Humility is not feeling bad about yourself. Humility is not comparing ourselves to others. Humility isn't merely the absence of boasting. And I want to ask all of you, you know, okay, so let's say we don't boast. How many in our heads have disgusting self-exaltation and self-talk in our head? How many times like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> I deserve that. Why'd they get that? I mean, come on. Don't we sound like, whoa, hush up. And it ain't no devil. That's your flesh. That's your soul talking. So I'm telling you, that's spirit of pride. That pride in our soul is there. And so our self-talk reveals a whole lot of what's humility and what's pride. Humility, shaped by the gospel, shows us just how bad we are and at the same time just how great God's salvation is. Remember, an imbalance to the Lord is an abomination. Oh, it's a balancing. Philippians 2, 1-4 says, It is your union with Christ that transforms you into a new creation. Who can consider others better than yourself? And look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in verse 12 it says, It begins with, Therefore, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We do have a part to play in pursuing humility. It's something we have to pursue. We have to war for humility because it is so contrary to our flesh. 
C.S. Lewis also says in The Weight of Glory. He says that I find that when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I'm in reality, <laughs> if I don't watch myself carefully, asking him to excuse me, not forgive me. There's a lot of difference between forgiving and excusing. Think about that for a minute. I don't know about y'all. Uh, this provoked me. I've done a lot of asking God to excuse me and not really asking him to forgive me. Forgiveness says, yes, you've done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you. And everything between us two will be as exactly as it was before. But excusing says, I see that you couldn't help it or you didn't mean it. You weren't really to blame. If one was not really to blame, then there's nothing to forgive. And that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposite. So maybe we need to start really evaluating when we ask God to forgive us. Are we really asking him to excuse us? Are we really asking him to forgive us? Are we going to repent? Are we going to try to do better? Humility makes a regular practice of asking God and others to forgive us instead of excuse us. The greatest thing we can do is be truthful and say, I did that. And just tell the truth of why you did it. Can you forgive me? I don't know why I did it, but it was wrong. There are actions where we can pursue humility. One of those is regular periods of fasting. Get your flesh in submission. Um, trusting entirely on God's provision. Using that time to, to pray. Keep our conversations. Begin to look at your conversations with others. Is it self-focused or is it others-focused? Are you more caring about that other person when they're talking to you? Are you wanting to say something that you want to say about yourself? Begin to look, observe, make things more about the person. How can I bless this person? How can I exalt this person? How can I make this person feel better about themselves this, today? Instead of like, oh, I, I could do that. Oh, well, let me begin to look at your conversations and even use that as a battlefield for humility and pride. Um, acts of service. Hey, we always need a toilet or, you know, in the house, you know, here, clean, or a floor mopped. I mean, there's so many acts of service. Feeding the homeless, going and, you know, delivering food, going to uh, see shut-ins, going to a nurse, you know. All these things, acts of service will also get your flesh in submission. And, you know, there's a lot of people that want to be in the spotlight, but nobody's wanting to die behind the scenes and clean and cook and, and work and, and, and lay their lives down. But I'll tell you, uh, you've got to serve before you can lead. And if you can't serve, you don't need to be in leadership. That's right. right? you got to be willing to do whatever, whenever, and that's true humility. Like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. That is just, again, he lived it. So that we would get those pictures in our mind of what true humility is. I like this again. C.S. Lewis says this. Bowing low and standing tall. And he talks about he went to the Grand Canyon. He said, if I wouldn't have known my God as the creator of the universe, I would have felt like a speck of dust. Mm -hmm. Because he knew his God, he was able to see you know, the beauty of God's creation. But standing before an even greater wonder, the cross where we are united with Christ in the comfort from his love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with tenderness and compassion, forges a gospel humility that bows us low but stands us tall. It's so opposite. 
Isn't it unbelievable when we get humble, when we serve, when we do those things that crucify our flesh, we really grow tall in the spirit. We grow tall in stature. We are a reflection of a Christ. We are a reflection of his design. That's the way it should be. Humility is an attitude of spiritual modesty that comes from understanding our place in the larger order of things. Have you ever been with maybe someone that you met and they've done all these great exploits, but you've done some pretty awesome things yourself? I'll tell you, it takes great humility just to keep your mouth shut and let them and then exalt them and just say, no, I'm not going to say a word. Or they'll talk to you like you know nothing. Have you ever had someone, and you've been in the Lord 30, 40 years, and you have somebody talk to you like you're, you know, a, a, a still on milk Christian? It takes a lot of humility just to shut your mouth. And, and I will tell you, because everything in it says, excuse me, <laughs> you, you want to one-up them. Because why? Pride. But humility says, keep your mouth shut, who cares? On this side of heaven, who cares? God knows who I am in the spirit. He knows my age in the spirit. He knows my maturity. How can I help this person? How can I, you know, platform, put a platform underneath this person? That's humility. But there's a danger that we have that's false humility. So I want to hit that in, in my closing. I want to talk about false humility because I don't think a lot of people really realize you know, for most of us in our lives, we've either struggled with issues of low self-esteem and self-worth, and unfortunately, our self-conscious and our feelings of unworthiness have done one or two things. It's either made us try too hard, go overboard in an effort to prove um, ourselves, or we just give up and retreat and defeat convinced that we will never measure up. So we may go one way or we may go the other way. And even though God graciously lifted much of the burden of guilt and shame and sins after we surrendered our life to Christ, I don't know about y'all, I still dealt with condemnation and negative feelings about myself. And for several years, in other words, you know, even though I had accepted God's forgiveness, and, um, but I wasn't completely willing or able to forgive myself in some areas. And I think a part of us believe that as Christians, we're supposed to not feel too good about ourselves. I think we get that confused and think that's humility. And that, again, is a perverse way the enemy moves. And so, actual humility, which is, after all, an important character trait for Christians, we could be harboring a false humility, an important character trait um, that's really perverse. And it makes us not rise up in boldness and be effective for Christ. We need to understand, first off, the real meaning of humility. And that is what? Having an accurate estimate of one's worth. Over time, I came to realize I did not have an accurate estimation of my own worth. But God began revealing to me that my feelings of self-loathing, my self-condemnation were causing me to underestimate and to value my myself. Humility is not beating myself up, engaging in negative self-talk, or being filled with self-loathing. 
The real purpose of humility is to help us recognize where we stand in relation to God. It's all about where we stand in relation to God. Yes, humility is certainly the hard attitude necessary for repentance because we all know Psalms 51, 17, and many of us have been there. What? The sacrifice you want is what? A broken spirit and a repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And many of us have met God on that altar when we've been broken. And that's been some of the greatest ways he's shown up. Because again, we were, there was all humility. Our pride was gone. But it is not God's intention for us to remain face down, discouraged, and drowning in the muck and the mire of our own sin and our failures. James 4.10 offers this assurance. When you bow down before the Lord and you admit your dependence on Him, He will lift you up and give you honor. When we humble ourselves before our God, He does. He lifts us up. He's the lifter of our head when we are downtrodden and down and under. So to have an accurate picture of my own self-worth, I need to see myself as God sees me. That's the whole thing. I have to see myself as God sees me and what God says in His Word about me. False humility, again, is a twisted form of pride. It may seem strange to say that someone with low self-esteem has an issue with pride. We tend to think of pride as an overly confident, arrogant, and smug attitude or disposition. But an overinflated sense of self-worth is what we think of when we think about Pride. But the flip side of that coin is when we view ourselves as worthless and possess an inferior or too low estimation of ourselves. Basically, pride causes us to have either too high or too low an opinion of ourselves and to believe that our opinion of ourselves is greater than God's opinion of us. Oh. Wow. That's sin. Do you need to say that again? That is sin. Wow. To think that our opinion of ourselves is more important than God's opinion. That again is what? Pride. It's pride. Mm -hmm. False humility occurs when we do not submit to God's will and thankfully and fearlessly accept what He has done for us. The bottom line is pride skews the way we see ourselves and ultimately leads us away from God and pride ends up in humiliation while humility brings honor. You see somebody honored? And there's a season of honor, you can bet they just went through a place of being humbled. <laughs> False humility is an affront to the work of Jesus Christ. He completed it at the cross for every one of us. This struck like an arrow to my heart many years ago. A preacher says, if you continue to condemn yourself for the sins that God has already forgiven, you are in effect telling God that Jesus' death on the cross was inadequate for the forgiveness of your sin. The very idea that my inability to forgive myself might be somehow offensive or disrespectful to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross turned me around and it sure all of you. If God is willing to forgive me, how can I do any less? That moment has stuck in my memory. It's because I was so personally convicted for me and God was able to see and use that truth to enable me to finally forgive myself to being a flawed and sinful human being and without Him there is nothing good in me. That is truth. We are nothing aside from Christ. And even when the enemy talks to you, 
You know, agree with the adversary quickly. Because he usually has an element of truth in what he's saying to you. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Satan, but... But he is the author and the finisher of my faith. And what he began, he will complete. And I am an overcomer. And you begin to speak those things that are true when he comes at you. And I'll tell you, he'll come at you the most is when you're stepping out in boldness. When you're doing the things God's called you to do. When you're getting behind the pulpit. We had that conversation last weekend. That every time you get up, then the enemy says, Did that sound it's stupid? Why did you do that? Maybe you shouldn't have prayed that. Were you in order? You really weren't in order. Man, you said that wrong. I mean, how many times, every time you do something in boldness and you step up before your God and you step out in faith, the enemy comes, oh, what's he doing? He's not afraid of you. He's afraid of the Christ in you. And he's afraid you're going to know who you are. Because if you know who you are in Him and what He says about you, you are going to obtain your birthright. You're going to do great things for His kingdom. So here's a few encouraging truths as I close. God has declared me not guilty because Jesus has freed me and taken away his, my sins. I'm a new person in Christ. The old is washed away. The Christ lives in me and my trust is in the one who loved and sacrificed for me. And Christ calls me His own and gives me His precious Holy Spirit. I thank God for the Holy Spirit. And God welcomes me into His presence because my faith is in Christ and Christ alone. So Lord, I'm asking, I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, I'm asking you, God, as a congregation, that God, if there be places of false humility, Father, I ask today that you go deep in each one of us. And you highlight those places that are still pride. Places where we thought it was being humbled. But Lord, it's not being a conqueror and an overcomer. And it's not walking in who you said we are. And God, I thank you that we are able to come boldly before the throne of grace. Yes. And that Lord, you are able to cleanse us. And you are able to make us whole. Father, we want to be humble. We want to serve others. Help us. Help us to put pride aside. Help us to develop humility. Help us to be in your word and let your word cleanse us. Let your word be the truth to every stronghold that's been built by the way the enemy has spoken to us. By the way the enemy has built strongholds to make us think we're less than and not good enough. Because you said, you said we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That we are royal. We are royal priesthood called to do great things in your kingdom. And as we enter into this holy week, let this week be full. Let us have our eyes open. Let us see where you're, where you're moving. Let us hear you speak, God. Let us not miss your hidden message. Stir us. Stir us, God, to just be one-on-one, -on -one, face to face with you all week, God, in your presence and celebrating what you did when you came and you gave up your life to be humble, where you took the road that is not only less traveled, it's a road that's never been traveled by a man. It's only the one the King of Kings came and gave his life in order to save us and that we can be in you and you can be in us and you'll work that humility in us. So, Lord, we're asking as a congregation, help us to lay pride aside yes. and learn to be humble. And, Father, I ask you, God, as we, you humble us, Lord, we thank you for the honor that you will bestow upon us, Lord, as we walk and bring your kingdom to your people. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. 
Amen, amen. Thank you for listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. If you would like to watch our message live or looking for more information about our church, visit us. Follow us on Facebook, Restoration Church.